Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news roundup that brings you an unusual view of what's really going on in today's world. I'm Kevin Barrett, special guest commentator today, but unfortunately on a slightly dubious internet connection is Dr. Ellen Sabrosky, former head of the strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College. We need some strategic wisdom now, Ellen. Are you ready? He's ready, but he's also frozen. Hmm. Hope he's not frozen for the same reason that RT is frozen. You're not already under cyber attack, are you, Alan? Maybe he is. We were just chatting before we started broadcasting, and uh, he was doing fine. But now all we do is all we can do is see his picture. Well, I guess I can start the show and hope that uh, Alan's connection gets restored. So uh, let's begin with the public service so. announcements. Hey, he's he's <laughs> you're back, Alan. We changed the slide, and suddenly uh, your voice returned. So, so, Alan, you might want to, I don't know, can you turn off your video so that we only get audio? Maybe that would save your bandwidth. Oops. Oh, well. Anyway, we'll go yeah. through the disclaimers here. Uh, first I disclaimer is question everything. And if you can't uh, go somewhere else, um, you'll find many of our views and insights disturbing. That's just too bad for you. And uh, and finally, um we do have a uh, serious health announcement and warning. There is a dangerous, debilitating, potentially lethal virus circulating throughout our nation. It's called fear. So please help inoculate yourself and others against this deadly fear virus. Watch False Flag Weekly News and donate to our weekly fundraisers. I guess we're supposed to fear the Putin virus now even more than the COVID virus. Um, but False Flag Weekly News is the antidote. Okay, let's uh, let's get going on the stories here. Uh, so, Alan, are, is your voice there? Hmm, nothing. Alan isn't there at all. Well, we're not going to have a very good uh, co-commentary from Alan today if, if we can't get him back. So, uh, the theme today is from COVID to Putin, the West's desperate attempt to switch the villain uh, and the target of, of the fear in their incessant fear-mongering from this allegedly deadly virus that suddenly became 10 times less deadly when Omicron came along. Um, and the uh, the vaccines, which are now being revealed as total frauds and uh, lethal ones at that, we'll get into that a little bit later. And then coincidentally, just as their entire COVID narrative has imploded, the trucker caravans are starting off across the U.S. The backlash is about, it's poised to really uh, kick in. And then at that precise moment, suddenly we have a war in the Ukraine and uh, a demonized Putin leading it. Ooh, how coincidental. I mean, even even Ron Unz, who takes a while to accept conspiracy theories, emailed me yesterday saying that if, if he were a conspiracy theorist, he would think that this timing of war in Russia, just as the COVID narrative implodes, and particularly just as the vaccine company's uh, stocks implode uh, due to the information available now and noticed by Wall Street that these vaccines are not only relatively ineffective, but also lethal and are a major contributor to the huge rises and deaths being witnessed uh, by the insurance companies. That data is starting to leak out and uh, Moderna is going to zero um, 
Pfizer is going to something close to zero, according to at least some projections. Anyway, uh, it's a good time to have a war and distract people, isn't it? Okay, we need to try to get Alan Zabrowski back here. Alan, uh, is your voice there? Okay, we need uh, Alan, the producer, to get Alan Zabrowski back here. It's pointless to try and do the show without him. So uh, I will trust that that process is underway and uh, continue. So let's let's move into our first stories. I think I think our actual first story here is the uh, we, we missed a slide, though. We, we missed the slide, the breaking news that fi- Pfizer is down 20 uh, percent and Moderna is down 70 percent. Their stock has cratered due to the widespread uh, evidence of widespread harm and death coming out in insurance statistics. I think that this is a slide that I sent in an hour and a half ago that maybe didn't make it into the lineup. In any case, uh, the report from nakedcapitalism.com, which is a relatively mainstream uh, left-leaning blog, uh, cites uh, BlackRock exe- former BlackRock executive and investment advisor Edward Dowd saying Moderna is going to zero. Pfizer will end up at less than $10 a share. There is going to be an avalanche of lawsuits coming as the insurance industry continues to uncover the legions of mounting deaths coming from complications from mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and alongside that, a brand new study out of Lund University in Sweden confirms our worst fears. The exogenous genetic material coding for the dangerous spike protein is reverse transcribed into the human's genome with possible long-term uh, con- constitutive expression and synthesis of the disease-promoting lethal spike protein. So these people who've been injected are apparently vulnerable to permanent poisoning from the spike protein. Wall Street has discovered this and the vaccine stocks are collapsing. So, uh, moving on to uh, COVID to Putin, uh, this, this story from Lou Rockwell mentions that, uh, obviously, it's, you know, let's quote from it. They need Putin in the new enemy, as the new enemy, as COVID uprisings appear, and now they need to change the emergency. So, let's, uh, let's move on into more uh, Ukraine analysis, but we, we need to get Alan Sobrowski back here. And again, I need I need a message assuring me that that's going to happen or we will abort this show and I will do talk to Alan on Do False Flag Weekly News at a later date uh, when we can get Alan on some decent equipment. Uh, I need so I need to see a message in my chat window from Alan, the producer, uh, letting me know what's up with that, uh, because I'm not going to do this show without Alan Zabrowski. We need the strategic studies analysis. Uh, and so here we are with Veterans Today's take on this, uh, the VT team. Uh, loved Putin's speech the other day, and I love parts of it, including uh, Putin's statement that uh, U.S. politicians, political scientists, and journalists uh, write and say that a veritable empire of lies has been created inside the United States in recent years. And then Putin goes on to say, quote, the whole so-called Western bloc formed by the United States in its own image and likeness is, in its entirety, the very same empire of lies. So that's the catchphrase, I think, that uh, ought to go viral after Putin's speech, the empire of lies, you know, from the Kennedy assassinations through 9-11 and so many uh, things we talk about on this show, including the usury uh, fiat money system. It's all based on lies. And lies are associated with with shaitan, uh, Satan, so Essentially, uh, Putin 
obviously an imperfect uh, truth crusader, uh, is at least telling the truth about that, that he is up against the most evil force uh, in human history. And I think we have to recognize that, hey, we've met the enemy and he is us. Hey, there's Alan Sabrowski. Alan, welcome back. Can you hear me? Yeah, you you are now audible. Like, yeah. I I took the camera out, reset it, and rebooted. Don't ask me what happened. Anyway, we both uh, we both understand the way these things go on it. Uh, Unit eighty eight hundred two has to earn its money somewhere. Maybe it's them, or who knows who it is these days. So, what do you think of Putin's speech uh, calling out NATO as the empire of lies? Uh. I don't like the Russians very much, as I told you before. I spent my whole life planning to fight them. But I have to say, in this case, I think he has far more on his side than we do on ours. There's been an enormous hypocrisy on the Western side, generally, and the American side in particular. If I took a look at a map, which I really hadn't seen before until a few days ago, of the expansion of NATO eastward after the unification of Germany and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And every single country in the old Warsaw Pact and in the former Soviet Union, except for Belarus and Ukraine, has now been brought into NATO. And just these last two are left. That wasn't supposed to happen. The understanding was very clear. I read the documentation that the British, French, and German governments understood that there was to be no expansion of NATO as an alliance eastward from the borders of the old East Germany, that they could have expressed interest in what happened in the other areas, that they could have bilateral relations with any of these countries out there. That was perfectly normal. But NATO as an alliance was not to go beyond the eastern frontier of Germany. That was it. The Oder and East Line was to be the frontier of Germany as as well as NATO. And and we have some stories uh, coming up in this show supporting that, including with smoking gun documents. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. With no question at all on it. And I think that, you know, we are completely blind. Not, not, I don't think that we are completely blind, but publicly we are completely blind to the facts that one NATO expanded where NATO was not to expand Two. NATO was a defensive alliance, which has become an offensive alliance, first of all, ripping apart, helping rip apart Iraq in Desert Storm, then deliberately ripping apart Yugoslavia and pounding Serbia into submission, you know, in the late 90s. Afghanistan was at least in part a NATO exercise. Certainly most of the NATO members were there. And the entire character of the alliance has shifted. And I expect from the Russian point of view, I was almost going to play the Russian national anthem in the background, but, you know, I'll have enough people knocking on my door anyway. But the real, the real essence of this is that when, when the Russiagate, whole Russiagate phenomena started, aside from the fact that it was a hoax from day one, that the, that that basically treated Russia as an enemy. 
but somehow, in, and in fact, ignored the fact that the country Israel, which really does intrude in our elections all the time, both sides, both parties, all the time, wasn't even mentioned. But that Russia was treated as an enemy. If the Cold War restarted, talks of World War III, I think, are nonsense. Okay, let's move to the next slide. The the next slide is Yahoo News uh, telling us that World War III is coming. Or no, sorry, that's oh, this 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 was the the insert of uh, the Empire of Lies and pointing out in today's New York Times we had this tirade of lies uh, about RFK Jr., including these grotesque lies about uh, the New York Times is assuring us that there was no conspiracy uh, behind the assassination of his father and uncle. Don't get me started on that. Yeah. Okay. So now we move on to the, uh, the following actually, slide, which, which is Yahoo actually, News telling us that, that World War III is coming. Okay. I suppose if we decided to send seven, the 7,000 paratroopers in, that we've got in Eastern Europe to fight the Russians in Ukraine, it would be very bad. Certainly it would be very bad for the paratroopers. But it would take us attacking them. And what separates this from anything that we may have done in our previous wars is that previous wars since since World War Two is that unlike our other victims, uh, Russia is not a country that can be isolated and pounded into submission with impunity, as we did with we tried to do with Afghanistan, except they won, as we did with Iraq, as we did with Libya, as we've done with so many others. It's not. But a new Cold War was effectively declared by us in 2016. It was mostly the Democrats and the media establishment, but it was really there. Once we started talking about Russiagate and putting it up in front of the American people and this, the drumbeat on that with the, with the Republicans essentially saying, no, it isn't, no, it isn't, no, it isn't. That was the declaration of a Cold War. Russia was defined as an enemy. But it is a Cold War, so that this, this oh, Yahoo, news, the Yahoo News story in, this, in the slide that we can look at again uh, is exaggerating here by yeah, suggesting that World yeah. War III might be right around the corner. Yeah, no, new Cold War, absolutely. In fact, it's a late, late to acknowledge the declaration of a Cold War, which is really unfortunate. Um, I, you know, I obviously didn't back either Hillary or Biden. Um, first, because, you know, I, I thought she made the best witches look like really nice people. And the second is that I wasn't sure that Biden knew which part of the planet he was on. But I didn't vote for Trump either. You know, it's sort of like looking at these epochs on both of your houses. But when it came to the Russians, I think his, his general philosophy is he wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had a fairly sensible, as well as the Chinese, you know, if, if these three powers work out an accord, an accommodation, we've got a reasonable chance that we can get through the next next generation without turning each other either into paupers or ash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the historians um, quoted in, in this Yahoo News article, Ellen, uh, most of them are just putting out these kind of banal statements that uh, just fluff, the usual nonsense. But there's a Japanese guy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison who at least admitted that this is a whole new situation because the world is now multipolar. Yeah. 
yeah, it's well on the stage to it. It's I think it is it is multipolar. Uh, it's probably more than that. We'll just watch. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Looks like our show is going back to being unipolar. Uh. <laughs> That's going to be happening. It'll be difficult because actually, aha, we're back on again. Um, yeah, we're good. What, what's going to what's what's going to be very difficult, and I think I would really think that the article um, by that that Russian I sent to you uh, was really very good. That this this is the clash of civilizations, you know, contrary to what you know, Francis yeah yeah we and we'll get to that. That was that RT okay. article. I actually used that as a springboard for a chutbah or Islamic sermon that I preached in our log cabin mosque yesterday, Alan. <laughs> okay, for your information. So yeah, that's that was a great article. Okay. Um, the the thing about that was was really interesting. It, it, you know, Francis Fukuyama back at uh, at the Rand Corporation twenty over twenty years ago talked about essentially the end of history, that the end of the Cold War meant that there was going to be the end of history. Well, this one is much closer. It's the woke West, the conservative Russia, and you know a technocratic China, mm-hmm. and the woke West is in the worst position. Um, I have to share something with you on this. And it's one of those little things I didn't pay much attention to when I heard it over about 40 years ago. Uh, and and, and let, let's just quickly ask Alan the, Alan, Alan, the producer, could you forward us about six, four or five slides up to that RT story, the coming clash of civilizations, because that's, that's what Alan's talking about. Like several slides okay. and Thanks. on, on, on a little more, a little more. One more, I think. There we go. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Guy named, guy named uh, Francois Heisberg. He was a national security advisor to Francois Mitterrand, the socialist president of France. He gave a talk at CSIS in the early 80s. And I was chatting with him afterwards. And he's, this, this is, you know, way in the ancient days. You know, Brezhnev was still running around, at, or at least he was at least functional and, and being trotted out as if he were alone. But we were talking about the possible end of the Cold War. And he said, you know, he said a Soviet victory in the Cold War would be a disaster. And I said, why? He said, to be cautious and they're an incredibly conservative culture. He said, you're not. And you're unpredictable. And if you win, I fear for the West. And I don't think he understood, and I certainly didn't. Neither one of us understood or anticipated that the that the woke neo-cultural Marxism would would so infect the Western countries in general, and certainly the United States and Britain in particular, that it would corrupt them from within so that if there is to be a new Cold War. We have lost before it starts. Hmm. That's Period. an interesting perspective. Uh, and, and it certainly does look like there's, yeah, no, it's, yeah, in, you know, again, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a variation on the, uh, we've met the enemy and he is us uh, theme. Well, let's move yeah. back five slides to the bear baiting slide. Okay. So one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, we'll get, we'll get to uh, Diana Johnstone's article uh, comparing 
the provocations of Russia that led to this situation to this so-called sport of bear baiting, which uh, used to be uh, apparently very popular in a lot of places where the dogs and the bears would rip each other to shreds for the pleasure of the spectators. And mm-hmm. uh, Diana Johnstone writes that a version of bear baiting is being practiced every day against whole nations on a gigantic international scale. It's called United States foreign policy. Uh, is that an exaggeration of the extent to which uh, the NATO provocations produced this disaster? I don't. Th- I think it is a slight exaggeration in terms of the magnitude of the provocations, but there was, and this goes back to what I mentioned about the the Russia Gate thing from from 2016 on, tw- late 2015, 2016 on sort of a continuous undercurrent in the mainstream media implicit in the whole Russiagate narrative. It wasn't intentional, but implicit in it that there was something bad about Russia man, bad about the Russians. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk, they talked about, well, the French were doing it or the British were doing it, there really wouldn't have been that that type of a of a sense of somehow evil associated with it, and and that goes way back, Alan. There's a, yeah. a book called Russophobia by a, a Swiss author. I forget his name. Um, yeah, I think I interviewed him a couple of years ago. It traces this uh, hatred of Russia back through a thousand years of history. That's that. Mm, that would be an interesting thing to read. Uh, what was the name of it again, please? Uh, the title of the book is Russophobia. Okay. I don't think a thousand years is good because the Mongols were just getting ready to have their excursion and real estate development into the yeah, West. probably like seven hundred years would be more like it. Yeah, I, I would say I would say that Russia was was in difficult straits until Peter the Great. Right. Well, th- this author actually traces yeah. it back to the split in the Christian Church with the uh, what became the Eastern Orthodox Church and yeah. the Catholic Church. And that this author sees the Catholic split off as a split off of the West turning uh, against what would become Russia. It's, you know, that that's actually more true than not, that the Russians, I think, as a result of their history, but I think to them, it's the depredations from the East rather than from the West that had that impact on them. Well, they've had both. Yeah, they've had they've had both, but it was, the Eastern one was a big one until World War Two. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it it inclined them to be complete, very mistrustful of us, and they have every good reason to be. Uh, and, we yeah, thought, and, that, and that point was also made in this next slide, uh, this Covert Action magazine article. Uh, and so the question becomes, well, what, what are these first shots that Ukraine supposedly fired at Russia? Well, what they're talking about here, of course, is the nonstop shelling of civilian targets in the Donbass region that's been going on for many years. Yep. And, you know, in this case, Putin is quite correct. But, you know, these two problems, we set the stage for all of this. There was a legally elected president in 2014 in Ukraine. We staged a coup thanks to Victoria Nuland to overthrow him. We did overthrow him and set the stage for all of the things that have happened ever since. And I think that uh, this is one color revolution that can be colored gone. Well, how, how about the issue of false flags? In the next story or next slide, 
we have this piece by Andrei Martyanov, who's going to be on my radio show next week, um, on the irony of Western leaders issuing false flag warnings. Uh, many of us have been remarking <laughs> over the past two weeks that the, this flurry of false flag warnings coming out of the Biden administration, where they're screaming constantly about how the Russians are going to, they've, they've already filmed all of these uh, fake atrocities. It's all CGI, and they're going to sell it to us as though there was a huge attack and uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and they've used the term over and over, false flag, false flag, false flag which it used to be, you, you would only hear that term on shows like this. Uh, I guess we should have copyrighted it. But anyway, Martian up here, I think he makes a good point. But then uh, the question is, okay, so, so the Russians didn't stage any big false flags. Uh, they just went in. Uh, however, the West very well might, because I don't think Biden really has the support he would need to crack down on Russia, but he might get that support if uh, something horrible happened. Like, let's say our entire Internet went down and a lot of the electricity grid went down and people were starving and shivering and it was blamed on the Russian cyber attack. Then maybe people would start hating Putin enough to help them do what they want to do. Well, instead of. Instead of worrying about what Biden might do, since I'm not sure she's uses the toilet properly without assistance. You might better, and I'm, I'm being very serious. Yeah, you, yeah. Might, you might, you might, no, I'm being very serious. I mean, it's a classic case of, of growing senile dementia. Yeah, and and that, that's why the Saker always puts quotes around Biden. You know, when he says yeah, Biden, yeah. what he means is the be guys who are really more, running things. More, it would be more important to, to learn, really learn precisely who in the administration is in fact pulling the strings on this. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all. Um, you know, I've looked at this very carefully and it, you know, the, the tea leaves are not very clear on this in the slightest, but it would be necessary to find out who it is or which, and I, it's going to be a multiple who I'm quite sure, but who is actually doing that? I think, I think he, he made a rather revealing slip. <laughs> He's made many revealing slips, actually. But when he was giving one of his first press conferences, uh, where his staff for the first time cut off the television connections and put one of those, you know, blank screens on it, he leaned forward and said something. He said, well, I'll take questions now if that's what you want me to do, Nance. <laughs> and there, it flashed Pelosi's face. And then cut off everything cut off Mm. and it may actually be someone like her and you know fill in the blank but that's important now the whole false flag thing i i find that very amusing for a country i i think there's only one war in which the united states has been involved that hasn't been preceded by a false flag, and that's Korea. And that struck us completely by surprise, literally. We had no troops there except for a handful of advisors. The nearest troops were four infantry divisions on occupation duty in Japan, who probably would have been beaten by the the Samoan National Guard. They piled into Korea and immediately got their butts kicked. 
But that surprised us. Well, man, so, so maybe the, the, the moral of the story for the American leadership is, hey, we've won all these wars that started with false flags. Well, not all of them, but some of them anyway. <laughs> so maybe yeah. we should start the war at our time and place of choice. And that involves doing a false flag to get the public behind it. Well, I think that's probably very true. You know, some of them have been very expensive. Uh, the Civil War, for example, was supposed to be one of these these 30-day wars. And it had... in everything would be over very quickly. And unfortunately, it didn't quite end up that way. Yeah, sort of like Yemen. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam and Afghanistan should be lessons up front, although no one bothers learning them. Um, but yeah, false flags usually precede, precede our wars. And I think the reason is that it's very, very, very difficult, or it has been until recently, to mobilize American public opinion to go to war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brzezinski you know, admits that in the grand chessboard. Yeah, I know. You know, you know, it was and it was very true. It was absolutely true that you know, basically the business of America is business, and all the rest of the all the rest of the arguments about who pulls the strings and who controls the puppets and all the rest of that aren't changed by that. You just change the 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 battle from an international battle involving troops to a domestic battle involving other things. You know, you can still, the same principles can apply. But if you're going to wage war, you know, you've got to have something to make Americans think that their opponent is not merely dangerous, but evil. Mm-hmm. And the best, and antidote, best antidote to that is uh, a counter-narrative. If people have enough access to the counter-narratives, then they won't fall for it. And, and in the next slide, we do see uh, another source. We've been mentioning a bunch of good counter-narrative sources here. Mm-hmm. We mentioned uh, Martianoff. We mentioned the Saker. And uh, yet another one is Moon of Alabama, uh, a pretty yeah. good blog from a, a pro-Russian source. So people should be looking at the Russian point of view. I mean, even if you want to fight the Russians, you need to know what their point of view is, right? Exactly. Um, absolutely. The You know, it's. I think that... Uh, People often talk about the difference between strategy between between Clausewitz and and Sun Tzu. Well, actually, you need to do both of them. You know, Sun Tzu's classic thing is, you know, if you if you want to win all of your battles, know your enemy and know yourself. That means know your enemy's strengths and weaknesses and points of view. Know yourself, your strengths and weaknesses, and your point of view. And then Clausewitz, once you understand the position from Sun Tzu's point of view, then pick the decisive point, the schwerpunkt, point, the center of gravity, and concentrate there. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler would have failed Clausewitz's course on strategy. He didn't pick the decisive point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how about Putin? There, there are different views right now. Uh, some are calling Putin, Putin a genius, like Trump is, and then others, uh, like uh, Patrick Coburn here, are saying that this is a terrible mistake, that the bear has been baited into going into a bear trap. Uh, and, he, and Coburn oddly compares this to Saddam Hussein being lured into Kuwait by April Glaspie, uh, who famously went there to tell him, oh, we take no position in these inter-Arab disputes. Go ahead and take Kuwait. Um, and then, boom, the uh, hammer came down. So Coburn thinks something like that's happening to Russia. But I, I don't think that's a good comparison because... I- uh, there's not going to be a turkey shoot uh, taking out Russians. It's not going to work that way. Saddam Hussein's army was pretty easy to beat in Gulf War One, but somehow I don't think the Russians are going to be that much that that easy to beat. 
No, nor, nor, nor is the prelude to it that um, April Glaspie actually sent back to the State Department. Um, a former friend of mine was working for Baker then, a guy named uh, uh, Sickerman, Harvey Sickerman, one of the staffers uh, for Baker personally. Uh, and he wrote a paper for Baker after Glaspie approached him with Saddam Hussein's request. You know, which was to Saddam Hussein asked her, what would the position of the United States be if I took direct action, and that has only one interpretation, have direct action against Kuwait to settle this debt issue? Um, and so she got back to Baker, not which is reasonable for an ambassador to do, you know, ask the Secretary of State. And Harvey, uh, Harvey Sickerman, who I knew since the early 70s, early 1970s, uh, drafted a paper for Jim Baker explaining how it would be terrible to miss an opportunity to let Saddam Hussein overextend himself. Mm -hmm. And so whoever told, I don't know who talked to Glaspie, but someone in Foggy Bottom told her to tell Saddam Hussein that the that disputes between Arab countries were of no concern to the United States. So that was giving a green light to a shark place looking at a feeding table. Mm -hmm. So probably no one was more astonished than he when this blew up into a crisis. Mm -hmm. and yeah. that's in a war. So, so that, so that, that, that leads to the question. Obviously, the U.S. strategy is to try to get Russia to overextend itself. And Coburn thinks it'll work. What do you think? Uh, not a chance. Well, Coburn thinks Coburn says about, this, it's it's going to be economic that Russia's economy will get strangled by the uncertainties of hot and cold war and economic sanctions. <laughs> As we watch GAT oil go over a hundred dollars a gallon and mm -hmm. contemplate who is going to be strangled, I think uh -huh. I'm not really sure I do it. And plus, China does they know they they understand the Russian position. I wonder how we're going to do with driving both Russia and China closer to one another. Plus, in a military sense, you know, the, the Russians, well, the, the Russians and the Soviets before them have had a far more sophisticated approach to the use of air power than we have had. They have a layered air defense system, and their air defense system, and I'm not sure about this at the, in the tactical units in the Army, but their air defense system was always integrated with their air force. And it was a layered air defense system. So by the time all of the missiles and, and guns finished dealing with whatever they were dealing with up there in the air on the tactical level, then the fighters came in. They don't overextend themselves. You're not talking about something where in the case of Saddam Hussein, knowing that his air force would be outnumbered 10 to 1, had it fly to Iran before the fighting started. And so his ground forces were there with no air cover no helicopters in a desert war, that's just absolute death, not a question. It's going to be an entirely different situation on their border, on their border. Right. So so it's what we've seen so far is that Russia seems to have been able to go into Ukraine fairly easily. It's got the key cities surrounded. And Ukraine uh, partly may have precipitated this with its bringing up possibly rearming itself with nuclear weapons. Oh, yeah. And Zelensky uh, said that, you know, he, he never accepted the Minsk agreements, uh, which would have 
pretty much um, prevented this war from happening. So that's probably the single biggest cause alongside NATO's expansion. And so what was his ace in the hole? Well, as we see in the next slide, Ukraine was once the fourth biggest or the third largest, actually, nuclear weapons power in the world. And then it was disarmed by this complex international agreement. And now uh, this brilliant Zelensky, who who knows which American hawk was whispering in his ear, you know, somebody who's trying to get to get to Putin, not Saddam, to overextend himself, uh, makes this brilliant threat. Hey, hey, you know, I think we're going to need to get some nuclear weapons here to deter the Russians, just as the Russians are right on the point of invading. Uh, well, that's going to convince them not to invade, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I would probably think at that point, they probably moved the invasion schedule up several days. If there's anything to incline them to do that, particularly with their history on it, that that would be it. And, and they grabbed Chernobyl, of course, uh, quite pointedly. Uh, and, of course, now Russia is is even more adamant about uh, disarming Ukraine, because if they don't disarm them and, and keep them disarmed, then they've got that threat of this renuclearizing, which which would be a total disaster. And if Ukraine did have nuclear weapons, it would be in a position that if the leadership of Ukraine was stupid enough to want to be in NATO, there's no way Russia could stop them. And, and that's, I, I think I think the 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 interesting question is going to be if Putin can find some Ukrainian who would be sufficiently reliable either to be a firm neutral and not even attempt to do the NATO route or be very pro-Russian. One of these two things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sort of like the Belarus like Lukashenko in, in Belarus, something like that. But I suspect that just guessing this, and it's just guessing because I haven't thought about it before, that that Putin would probably view the Ukraine future, the optimal Ukraine future as one where it becomes another Belarus. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll see we'll see whether that works out though. Um there's yeah. Plenty of chances of civil unrest in Ukraine that could uh, slow that process. Well, in the, in the next slide, we finally get to this uh, issue that we mentioned earlier, which is the uh, smoking guns proving that indeed Russia was promised that NATO would not expand even one inch eastward at the end of the Cold War. Willy yep. uh, Wimmer, the parliamentary secretary to Germany's defense minister between 1985 and 1992, has been talking about this. And then the smoking gun document, which we have at our False Flag Weekly News website, where you can look at all the links yep. for all of these things, shows uh, very clearly that this was the case, that that promise was made. And then NATO quickly broke it. Um, why? I'm not really sure. Alan. I guess I guess they want to loot Russia's natural resources. That's all I can think of. Well, you know, it's the sort of thing that we could do it. You know, there was a drunken lout named Yeltsin as president of, of Russia. And there was very little we couldn't do. Not only plundered Russia economically, but plundered it, it politically. Yeltsin was completely incapable of responding in any effective way to any expansion of NATO beyond its, its borders. You know, we could do it, and so we did. Well, but there's oh, always oh, got to be, there's got to be more motivation than that. And again, I, I think it does have to do with grabbing Russia's raw materials. Well, partly grabbing, partly that on it, but even more than that, I think the general idea was that the, the Soviet empire had collapsed 
And with that collapse, there was an opportunity to preclude any resurgence of Russian power. You know, the Soviet Union having generally been seen as as a recasting of the Russian Empire, whether that's correct or not, that's how it was generally seen. And that that, that resurgence could be precluded by re- and extending the frontiers of NATO. And that's what it did. The, you could do it, and there was a good reason for doing it politically. And Russia was too weak to do anything to stop you. So, so having credibility by keeping your promises apparently wasn't even an issue. We weren't a signatory. Right. It never got signed and, and never no, got I mean, signed. No, blood, I mean, right? we weren't there. Mm-hmm. It was the Soviet Union, Britain, Germany, and France. Mm-hmm. That was the four powers. We were not involved in it. Well, I, 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 as I recall, there is evidence of, of, uh, U.S. uh, promise as well, but we were, we were, we were an observer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that, but that's, but I mean, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's a, a fig leaf that allows you to sort of scam past this on it. Uh, right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's typical in terms of the hypocrisy <laughs> of, uh, of the Western leadership and it's, it's standard operating procedure. And speaking of hypocrisy, how about this next slide, Alan? Uh, the U.S. is, is beating its chest about these evil Russians who have lists of Ukrainians to be killed or sent to camps. Um, I guess that's sort of like the pack of cards in Iraq. Well, but the, the different, the difference is the Ukro Nazis they're going after are war criminals, well, while no, the Iraqis no. were guilty of using Iraq's oil to benefit Iraqis. Well, I, I think what's, what's even worse here, you know, I, I looked at that and I, Thought, is there any mention of soap or lampshades there? And those <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's your yeah, yeah, sent at... to camps, right? There's, get out the Zyklon B. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, but exactly. both sides actually are using, you know, the Nazi comparison, right? Putin is the new Hitler, and Putin tells us that he's going after the Ukrainian Nazis. Yeah. So every, everybody's is, fighting the Nazis. Every, you know, which is which is there was this cartoon I saw this meme just this, just this morning on Gab. Uh, really like Gab so much better than Facebook, which is really not, not fair because it's what Facebook was 10 years ago, you know, basically. But this had this picture of Hitler saying very thoughtfully, if he's Hitler, what am I? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, let's, let's move to our, our next slide. Uh, here's, here's the big punishment for Russia, uh, losing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now that is going to cut into Russia's bottom line, no doubt. Although the huge increase in oil prices is probably going to more than make up for it. Germany, however, may have just cut off its proverbial nose despite its proverbial face. Germany just turned off its last three nuclear plants. Half of its gas comes from Russia. And now it's going to have to buy extremely expensive, environmentally destructive American fracked gas. So I guess this has actually worked out okay, maybe to some extent for the Americans. And Russia supplies as thanks to our illustrious next sniffing Joe Biden, 10% of our import of oil every day. Hmm. Oil has now passed $100 a barrel, and I think I'm going to start uh, investing in tanks so that I can fill up my car with gas whenever I want to. Gas tanks, not yeah. military tanks. Okay. You know, it's sort of I might want to have that, one of those, too, and keep that <laughs> filled up. <laughs> it's, you know, it's actually the sort of thing, very, very few people are going to win on this, but yeah, 
the the increase in in oil prices are going is going to be dramatic. Um, it's just going to be impossible. And, and and with all these threats against Russia now, here's another one. Finland is going to be brought into NATO. Well, that's what the American media tells us. But Finland's president actually didn't quite say that. All he, he said he, he wasn't planning on any major changes in his relationship with Russia soon. But he did suggest that Russia's actions are making Finnish people rethink their uh, being out of NATO. So that's yeah. being spun in the Western press. Is, hey, Putin, get this. Finland's going to join NATO, yeah. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think the Finnish people maybe don't want to be uh, taunting the Russian bear too much with this. I don't think so either. They've, they've been that route before. Yeah, the winter, the winter war went okay for Finland for, you know, for part of the winter. It did, but then it became spring. Right. Spring always does come. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, well, well, another interesting take on all of this, of course, is from President Donald Trump, who is saying Putin's move is, is genius. Uh, and then in the next slide, we see that Trump is predicting that, in fact, green lighting, some would say, China going into Taiwan. Uh, so this has, of course, led the, uh, the Democrats and the media to wonder whose side Trump is on. I've often wondered which side the Democrats and the media are on, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. I know, I know, I know, I know they're not on the American side, but it's not clear that there is a national side that they're on. I think it's very, but it's very true. You know, the, the American government, for, including his, including his, I don't think he would have done much differently. No, I don't think so either. I, I really don't. Uh, but, but wait a minute, Alan. Wouldn't you say, though, that despite Trump's total ineptitude, he at least has this common sense uh, America first philosophy and an intelligent and capable man with that philosophy is probably exactly what America needs. I think that an intelligent, capable man with common sense is what any country needs. Mm -hmm. uh, he thinks extremely well of himself and there have been very few effective leaders in this world through history who have not done so. Really, it's, it's just part of leadership. It's part of people who get up and, and bother going through the crap that's needed, whether you're Alexander the Great or anything else, to be at the head of a country, at the head of a, of a movement, and, and to be in charge. But I suspect that... The difference is that with that Putin probably would have felt that he could have dealt with him. And I think that when that Putin or the Chinese or anyone else looking at at Biden knows they're looking at an empty vessel. Mm -hmm. Literally an empty vessel on it. You know, I mean he has flashes of of very clear sentience. His classes, when his cognitive flashes, when his cognitive abilities are very great. Mm -hmm. And there are, are moments when, as part of this progressive dementia, you know, he, 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 is, he, he would insult a cabbage by describing it as Biden. Do you think Biden's senility is kind of emblematic of the American empire's senility? I mean, it is, it is. I mean, we're, <laughs> we still have our faculties, but then we're, we're losing them fast. Well, it's, it's the same part of the, of the, of most declining empires. You know, the, the military is that, that made the empire is still technically strong, but it's rotting from within 
and society is rotting from within and the economy is beginning to collapse. And it's it's an old it's an old time in history. It's, the story has been repeated many times. We're just walking that path. I don't think we expected to walk it so soon, but we're walking it. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing domestic dissension arise. And a classic symptom of that is the trucker convoy. The American <laughs> truckers peaceful people's convoy is uh, on the road. And its uh, its mission is to lift the mandates and end the state of emergency. But I think it's really part of this larger sort of America first um, common sense movement that Trump sort of represented in a not entirely uh, useful way, in my opinion. But I do think that the people of the United States are starting to notice, uh, along with you know Canadians and others, that their globalist uh, governments are not really representing them. And that, you know, we shipped all of the manufacturing to China and we built this empire of 800 military bases in maybe over 100 countries around the world, that this wasn't done for the benefit of ordinary people. It was done for the benefit of these plutocratic elites and these oligarchs who were sucking up all the wealth and power. And there's pushback against that. And the trucker convoy is a big part of that. It It, it is. I, I, uh, I had a, a brief moment when I wished that, uh, the truckers before they went to Washington would have gone up to Sacramento and changed the government of the state of California first. <laughs> like run over Gavin Newsom and then continue? Oh, it would, you know, no one would miss him. You know, start with Los Angeles. Gavin Newsom is roadkill? That's a, that's a pretty disgusting image. Um, uh, I mean, it, it sk- is, squash skunks are bad enough. Well, I mean, you'd have you'd have to clean the trucks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, that that trucker convoy is actually getting a little bit of positive coverage, believe it or not. But you have to go all the way over to London to the Daily Mail to see it, uh, and so here it is—the kind of coverage that the American mm-hmm. media would give it if they were maybe a little more uh, neutral. And maybe we'll see some of this from the sort of the uh, the Fox News type side, the, the, uh, the more populist side of the American media too. So anyway, they're supposed to be, where are they now? There's, there's like two or three different tentacles of trucks or that's probably the wrong metaphor. But, uh, anyway, these convoys mm-hmm. are coming from several different places and they are getting towards the Midwest right now for the most yeah. part. And they'll be in DC, what, next week. So I we'll have so. to follow yeah. that. Yeah. They're supposed to be, they're supposed to arrive on the eve of the uh, state of the union address. Interesting. Well, let's hope that D.C. isn't a smoking radioactive ruin at that point. Uh, Hopefully not. As you said, I think the the odds of this Cold War, new Cold War going hot are not quite that high. But they're bad enough, Alan. You know, that estimate of 1% per year is the average chance of global thermonuclear war ever since nuclear weapons were invented uh, represents a oscillation oscillation between 0.3% and 3%. And we're probably up over 3% now. Now, 3% a year may not sound that bad, but after a certain number of years, basically, you're guaranteed to be toast. So, I mean, that problem really does need to get solved. I, Without getting rid of nuclear weapons, you're not going to do that. And we're not going to get rid of nuclear weapons in my lifetime, which is not very long, or your lifetime, which is much longer. If we don't get rid of them, maybe everybody's lifetime isn't going to be very long. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you, I mean, you, you're, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what, what is that? You know, there was something like the, uh, there was a, there was a joke between a Soviet diplomat and an American diplomat in Washington and literally really in 1983, he said, you know, if there were ever a, a nuclear demonstration, 
the United States would attack China. We would attack New York City. The war would end and we would all three be better off. <laughs> now that's a truly pessimistic view. <laughs> so let, let's move to a heartwarming story about the indigenous elder who was trampled by the Mounties. Uh, Dudley Durag rode in there on his horse and, and trampled this woman with a walker. But the media told us that this woman, Candace Ciro, uh, it was her fault because she threw a bicycle at the police and, and a horse and then that somehow tripped the horse. And so the poor stumbling horse accidentally sort of stepped over her, but it didn't land on her and she wasn't hurt and all of this, all of this nonsense. And so she's gone public since then and described it. Yeah, she really was trampled. Yeah, well, actually, I understand they're both correct. She was trampled, but she did throw a bike at the horse. A bike? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I I didn't I did. catch that part. You know, I did. I I was astonished, but I maybe it, maybe it was Photoshop, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Huh. So never uh, throw a bike at a police horse. Oh, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not half as bad. There's there's a video and it really happened, and I think it was in is in Washington D.C. A man slapped a police horse on the rump, and the horse kicked him and knocked him right across the street over a car. Oh, that sounds like a Darwin Award candidate. That's a that's a just yeah, that's a Darwin Award. <laughs> oh man! So so uh, so more interesting Canadian trucker news as the American truckers are heading across the country. Uh, this congresswoman from New Mexico, Yvette Harrell has tweeted that she is proposing legislation providing political asylum to, quote, innocent Canadian protesters who are being persecuted by their own government. So we're going to have an inundation of Canadian political refugees, Alan. Uh, are no, you ready to put them up in your town? I doubt, I doubt if we're going to have that. Uh, most of the things that Republicans, particularly in the House, put up is simply grandstanding. Mm -hmm. And she is a Republican. Uh, Trudeau represents the same sort of politics and philosophy that the Democrats represent, and they have a majority. And she can rep push forward all the bills she wants, and she's not going to get it anywhere. And she knows it. She's playing to her constituents, as any politician does. Yeah. Twitter grandstanding. Play, well, play, what's tw Twitter for? You play for your constituents. What else yeah. are you doing it for? And nothing else there. But I don't think so. But uh, it would be really interesting bringing. Canadian migrants from the north and having them meet uh, Hispanic migrants from the south somewhere in Wisconsin would be a good oh, How, how about the Twin them. Cities? I think the Canadians could move into the Somali neighborhoods and they could sit there talking about the weather and the Somalis would be saying, it's freezing here, man. And the Canadians would be saying, it's balmy and warm here. The Somalis says, what are you talking about? It's it's 10 degrees and snowing. And the Canadian well, says, also, hey, man, get out, get out the swimsuits. Plus, the Canadians would deal with them in a different manner. Yeah, that's that, yeah. and it would be an interesting sort of culture mix. Personally, I, I I like the Muslim refugees. They you know they'll pray with me in my mosque and stuff. Those Canadians, I don't know about Canadians, man. That's you know they they're basically just redcoats. You know they <laughs> oh they would hate that. They would hate it. particularly the French Canadians. They don't accept that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for the French Canadians. They do not accept redcoats. They do not. They don't. don't the French know. Canadians are cool though. They they they're yeah, but... uh, feisty. Are there any French Canadian Mounties that have to wear their red coats home? I don't think there are. 
<laughs> That's probably why not. There you go. There's no <laughs> there's there's no French version of Dudley Do Right, huh? I guess not. Dudley Do Right. So let's move on to C.J. Hopkins. C.J. Hopkins is one of our uh, more trenchant observers of what he calls the new normal fascism, and he uh, nicely describes here the thousands of militarized riot police and other heavily armed operatives swarming Ottawa. Surrounding protesters, breaking into trucks, smashing windows, arresting people, beating people with batons in the butts of their rifles, and putting down the trucker convoy uh, at the orders of Trudeau. And meanwhile, Trudeau, as we see in our next slide, is expanding surveillance powers over financial transactions. I guess he's got his fingers and his eyes on everybody's uh, bank account now. Um, are they? Are Canadians going to put up with Trudeau, or do you think he's heading out? I don't know if he's heading out or not, but I really wish that you they wouldn't say that anytime people are doing abusive things that it's fascism. It depends on the politics of the person who's giving the orders. And considering Trudeau, I would say it's Bolshevism. Yeah, well, whatever it is, it's not good for people's freedom and it's privacy. Not at all. It's not, I, I was slightly humorous in that, but more than a little facetious. But it really, it's, it's really surprising that it's happening in countries like Canada and Australia and New Zealand that have never really been as subject to the type of uh, mass hysteria that the United States has been at different times on it. And they've, all three of them have collapsed internally so fast. I mean, I, you see the things coming about I hate to use the term police state because it's it's so overused. I think it's lost a lot of its significance. But of the intrusiveness of government and police in day-to-day -day life in all three of those countries, you just shake your head. Not something I ever would have expected. Mm -hmm. And, of Never course, so much that. of this is based on the COVID state of emergency, which has led to everybody uh, wearing masks and basically being ordered at near gunpoint to get vaccinated. And yet this week, um, there's so much news, actually, just this week, uh, undermining the establishment COVID narrative. Here's some of it. Uh, Steve Kirsch uh, points yeah. out that this Bangladesh study that was reported in the media as showing that masks work actually showed the exact opposite. It showed that the cloth, the, the, the red masks seemed to work pretty well, but the purple masks didn't work at all. And well, what he also said, though, is that um, if you read the study itself, you wouldn't get that conclusion. You had to go to the data on which the study was based before you really understood that. Right. So, so it's just a garbage study, uh, yeah. that the media, and it's actually the best thing that the media has to try to promote this idea that masks work. And if that's the best they have, I hate to see their worst. And meanwhile, there are these actual uh, controlled studies, uh, RCTs, randomized controlled trials, that are going back for years, showing that masks don't work. Um, of course, yeah. the, the N95s and surgical masks may, to some extent, help curb the spread of bacterial type infections because the bacteria are larger and they congregate in the little droplets of water that the mask might slow down. So that if your surgeon wears a mask and changes every half hour or so, that's probably a good idea. But for ordinary people trying to stop a virus that goes right through the mask, it's probably not a good idea. But we all have to wear them anyway as a sign of abject submission. Uh, and the same thing uh, with the vaccines. It's you know, the sort of thing that, uh, you know, Expecting a mask to stop a virus is like expecting a barbed wire fence to stop mosquitoes. 
you know, if one, if one mosquito runs into a wire, it might stop it, but it's not going to be that. Yeah. It's a sort of, it's sort of a, an odd form of virtue signaling to have a mask in your hand, have it in your hand, by the way, even if it's not on your face and that's, you'll get a pass on it most of the time. So, so the authors of the Bangladesh study actually hid their own data or tried to hide it anyway, showing that the masks don't work. And in our next slide, we see the CDC is hiding data showing that vaccines yeah. don't work, or at least uh, presumably casting some doubt on their efficacy. And they're actually admitting that. It turns out, I mean, this is what Meryl Nass has been telling me on my radio show for over a year now. And I thought, well, she's probably right. Uh, she's an expert. And it turns out the CDC is now admitting it. They've been collecting COVID data broken down by age, race, and vaccination status but they from the beginning, but they won't make any of it public. Or just little dribbles here and there, but it's almost all completely hidden. Why? Well, because, quote, this is from the CDC, the data might be misinterpreted as the vaccines being ineffective. Well, the okay. best, that's certainly reassuring. If you won't show us your data, uh, because you're afraid that we might think it doesn't support your narrative, somehow that doesn't assure me that your narrative is correct. That's correct. And of course, it's not correct. Uh, and it's also one of the interesting things that, uh, in some places where the data have been published, not in the United States, of course, that the death from vaccines exceeds the death from the disease. That's That's been the claim. And I've yeah. had people but on the radio show it. arguing that. And yeah, it, it actually, and we mentioned yeah. earlier that the big breaking news story today was about uh, Pfizer and Moderna stocks cratering yeah. as the evidence of vaccine harm is becoming undeniable in the actuarial work of insurance companies. Well, so, it's not just that this, that the stock should crater. There's, you know, in, in a, in a fair world, which of course this is not, there would be some arrests and some executions, summary executions taking place. Well, that's, I don't think that's much of an exaggeration here, Alan. I hate to say yeah. it, but, but I mean, it's just outrageous that they're, they hide the data. They manufacture this false narrative to sell this extremely dangerous product. They make trillions of dollars on it. They're hiding the truth about it all this time. And, uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people have already died in the United States alone from yeah. these vaccines, yeah. uh, according to some fairly credible estimates I've seen. Uh, I, we don't know for sure what those numbers are, but it looks pretty bad. I don't think we'll ever know what the numbers are because there's so many people who are counted as having died in which uh, COVID was at best a contributing factor or even just an incidental factor, but they died of other causes. And they tested positive with during the autopsy. Um, and so many people died of it and were never recorded. I don't think we'll ever know really. And many, they're actually not testing. This was something that uh, uh, Matthew Crawford explained on my radio show, he came up with this uh, figure of a few hundred thousand Americans killed by vaccines by looking at all kinds of data, especially from Europe. What he, what he found was that what typically happened was that somebody gets jabbed and then they die a short while later. They were being called COVID deaths, even without any testing. Yep. Yep. By the way, are you vaccinated? Uh, no way. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we, we should quickly make a disclaimer. Our producer, Alan Reese, is vaccinated. And again, I, what I've said throughout this whole situation is that, you know, based on people's age and so on, comorbidities, obviously, it looks obvious to me there's a cutoff age where it's just blatantly wrong to vaccinate people. And, you know, some have argued that's that's down you know low for kids or young people. Others have said pretty much anybody under 60. But 
as it's as what we're seeing now, I'm starting to think that this whole thing, uh, you know, whether vaccinating the say the over 60s or over 70s even would have been a good idea. Mm. But you know, we'll 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 see, I guess. Uh, but it's it's not looking good right now for vaccines. How about the next uh, story, which is we're suddenly going to Afghanistan where if Americans have a lot of reason to be angry at their leaders, the people of Afghanistan have even more reason to be angry at those American leaders. Biden froze uh, Afghanistan's money and is giving half of it to the shyster lawyers uh, who were misleading 9-11 victims into blaming the wrong people for what happened to their loved ones. <laughs> Frankly, Alan, this story is by itself is enough to make any sane person wish that Putin could get away with nuking Washington, D.C. Um or at least arresting a lot of the people there. You know, it's it's sort of a sort of fascinating to me that you know that we went into there, even even if the Bin Laden story were correct, and you know that I am convinced that it is not, that there is nothing about the government's case on 9/11 that is true, nothing. It is a complete lie from the from the get go. Even if it were true, by attacking Afghanistan because of what a handful of people in the caves up on the Pakistani border were doing, is sort of like deciding to get rid of a serial murderer by bombing the neighborhood in which he lived. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really, that's exactly what it was. You're like, so there's some murderers. And their families still live in that neighborhood in North Philadelphia, for example. So we're going to have the Pennsylvania National Guard go in and just bomb North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. A little and bit it, excessive. And, and what makes this excessive. even more annoying is that uh, out of the 20, uh, there are 24 million people in Afghanistan representing 60% of the population that are now suffering from acute hunger. And Biden is stealing half of Afghanistan's own money and giving it to shyster lawyers whose job is to try to blame the wrong people. You know, the, even, even if yeah. the official story were true, which we both know it isn't, the ordinary people of Afghanistan had, had absolutely nothing to do with this. No wonder they're angry. I mean, frankly, I wonder why there isn't a lot more catastrophic terrorism targeting the United States. And sometimes I even think there really should be. But uh, don't, <laughs> let, don't let Homeland Security hear me saying that. Uh, they probably are listening right now, but they haven't zapped you for once. And so we get to hear what you think, Alan. And that's the main thing here. <laughs> so let's go on. Uh, of all, you know, why do this is a why do they hate us story, right? Why do they hate us? Uh, why would Iran hate us? Uh, why would Iran not want our COVID vaccines? Why would Iran return the vaccines because they were made in the USA? Well, maybe they've noticed that the American vaccines are, to say the least, problematic. But maybe they've also noticed that the vaccines weren't the only thing that was made in USA. Maybe they've noticed that COVID was made in USA. And in fact, they have. The Supreme Leader and the head of Iran's armed forces have directly accused the United States of causing the COVID pandemic by launching a bioattack on China and Iran, which is undoubtedly the case, as Ron Unz has proved extensively in his ebook. Why do they hate us? I can't imagine. Oh. <laughs> why do they hate us? Let me count the reasons why. I think in the case of Iran on that, uh, you actually hit the cases at first because of that it is made in the United States and because they're ineffective and because the disease came from here. But I think that given our hostility towards Iran and that we have been 
edging ever closer to attacking Iran, just depending on how much Israel can push us. It, they would not be paranoid if they assumed that there would be something unpleasant coming with the vaccines as well. Indeed. And just like uh, we Americans uh, aren't necessarily paranoid to uh, be a little suspicious of these vaccines, I think the Iranians <laughs> have even more reason to be suspicious, obviously. Exactly. Um, but uh, whatever, our media will never tell us any of this. Uh, well, here back in the United States, ordinary Americans are being victimized by the same clique of oligarchs who are behind all of these hideous crimes that we talk about. And so, you know, when I talk about maybe we need some terrorism, I'm not talking about terrorism in the sense of killing innocent people and civilians. What I'm talking about really is vigilante justice. That's what I'm talking about. But I'm not going to openly advocate it because that would be wrong and would be deplatformed. So I'm just going to leave that as something that people can think about. Meanwhile, uh, <laughs> uh, housing prices are through the roof, up to almost 20% last year, 10% uh, in 2020. Uh, steepest one-year and two-year increases uh, in three decades, and now ordinary folks can't own their own homes anymore. Get ready for mass homelessness. Uh, maybe we can all live in our vehicles and drive around with trucker convoys. I don't know. Uh, so, Alan, our, does our economy have to be this bad, or is it being, shall we say, mismanaged? I'm, you know, I'm not an economist. I truly am not, and I, I would never pretend to be. Um, People who are and who I trust say that for the first time in America's history, we are within the year, unless something dramatically happens, something changes, we are going to have an experience of hyperinflation like Germany and other countries in Europe had in the 1920s, that is going to make the Great Depression look nice. It's not going to be a question of homelessness. It's not going to be a question of things being unaffordable, except the entire economy is going to collapse. And I think it's you can see little traces of that. A breakdown of the supply chain, um, just starting, and there will be, at some point, a breakdown in the supplies that come into the cities. Uh, the average American city has three days of food. And other cities in the world are much the same way. That's, that's the amount that come into it, because it's a fairly dense population, and, you know, and it's, there's only so much that goes into it. And if that is com combined with an energy shortage, whether it's fuel for generators that provide electricity and air conditioning, or fuel for generators that provide electricity and heat, doesn't really matter which one, at the same time that there's a food shortage, you know, the cities will start to collapse. And that's where the, that's where the the death of an economy will come. And it's not going to be one city. It's going to be basically the economy collapsing. It sounds like and what Dmitry Orlov has been predicting for years. You know, he's another of the really good sort of pro-Russia sources that you can keep an eye on to, you know, to know what the other side mm -hmm. of that narrative is. Uh, his, his blog is called cluborlov.com. Mm -hmm. 
And so he's, he's, he's been famous for predicting that collapse. He and Mike Rupert and these other people have been saying it's coming, it's coming. So now you're joining them. I am, I guess so in that sense, but it's, it wasn't, wasn't essential. I mean, even, even with the COVID, I think if the, if the 2020 election had not been stolen and we hadn't had that, that massive surge of, of policy changes in 2021, um, just absolutely unbelievable. You know, it's like the entire democratic agenda for the first three months was find out whatever the Republicans did over the preceding four years and reverse it. And but, but, but some of that wasn't so bad, right? Like, for instance, our next story, this California proposal to put on a, a 1.5% billionaire tax, uh, that's not a bad idea, is it? I think it's going to be a tax on beards and mustaches, too, and that's going to follow. Beards and mustaches? Yes. What does that have to do with billionaires? Oh, it's just going to, we're all going to be taxed for something. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the uh, inequality is is at the you know the root of all these problems, and there are a lot of ways that that should be dealt with, starting with reforming the monetary system. But in the meantime, uh, the fact that ordinary folks can't buy houses anymore because oligarchs are buying up huge numbers of houses and reducing people to rent slavery—that's uh, the kind of situation that needs to be fixed by some form of redistribution. And taxing billionaires uh, probably isn't a bad idea. I don't think they'll even notice the one and a half percent. Well, there you go. Maybe it should be more like fifteen uh, percent. Or uh, let's let's put Bernie Sanders in charge and uh, as commissar oh billionaire taxation, and we'll probably get a, a better rate for that. Well, uh, so so the Democrats, uh, you're you're saying, have really screwed things up, and certainly they're. I think they're screwing things up for themselves politically yeah. with this. Uh, we know how to educate your children better than you do, kind of thing. Uh, we saw that in the New Jersey election and now in San Francisco, of all places, this very hard left leaning uh, metropolis, despite it being totally unaffordable for anybody who's not rich. You have to be either rich or homeless uh, to live in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you're homeless, the way you pay for your lodgings is by uh, by urinating in public. Uh, this these Ga- President Gabriela Lopez uh, and Vice President Fauga Moliga and Commissioner Allison Collins all got beat in this recall election. Uh, because they were imposing all of the, the COVID fascism and they were trying to rename 44 schools, no more George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or any of these yeah. classic American names. Uh, so there was a woke agenda at work on that school board. And yeah, I used to substitute teach in the San Francisco high school. So I, yeah. I know that whole area and, uh, and the recall passed. So even San Francisco is recalling its woke school boards. Uh, that's bad <laughs> for the Democrats. And I saw, I found that so funny and particularly that picture that you included, because I'd seen something like it before that I read on that, some background on that. And the, the, about a quarter of the San Francisco voters came out to vote for this, this recall. And the large majority of them were Asians and specifically Chinese. And in fact, if you look at that sign, Mm-hmm. That's not exactly a white supremacist sign, <laughs> right? And, right. And, the, and the, what what the final the final blow was that they tried to do what New York City tried to do, which was to end merit for the admissions to one of these good magnet high schools. Yeah, that was Lowell High School, which well, is a oh, really that, good school that, there. Yeah, that, I, I believe I subbed there a few times. Okay, well, I didn't know the name of it, 
And, you know, Asians were a high percentage of the people who went there and blacks were almost negligible. And that was unacceptable to the school board. Well, it wasn't to the Chinese and to the Asians generally. And so that's why they were recalled. Mm-hmm. And exactly, that was the one that finally got the people out there in the streets. But so, know, so that, where, are, where are we at as a nation, Alan, when even the Asians are turning into white supremacists? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's going to be the normal division. It's going to be the, it's going to be the Asians and whites and the Asians do better than whites academically and everything else on that. Yeah. Ultimately they're, maybe they're going to end up in charge and I'll Asian that, supremacy will become the problem. I think that Asians and whites against, against Hispanics and blacks is going to be the division line. Hmm. What about the Jews? Oh, we're not allowed to talk about that. That's oh no, they'll run both. <laughs> okay, well, there's the last word from uh, from our Jewish friend, Dr. Ellen Sabrowski, ethnically Jewish, not foreign policy Jewish, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> it's always fun doing the show with you, and I'm really glad that the NSA or IDF or whoever it was decided to let your Internet uh, heal itself, um, because it would have been a long show without you, and it was a lot of fun with you. So thank you it, so much, it, it Ellen Sabrowski. It would have been, a, but, but I understand, and I understand that you were planning on having some roast pork if I was not on the screen with it. Oh man, I, I would be uh, <laughs> I would be composting roast pork if there were any around, but there isn't any, fortunately. So we'll just have to compost other things. All right, thanks, Alan. Uh, keep up Kevin, the great work. Show. God bless, and hope it. to have you back on here before too long. Uh, yeah, Kevin, I really liked it. Thank you very much. You take care, my friend. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye.